0: You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel, chapter 7. If you're using these black Bibles, and they are scattered throughout the sanctuary underneath the seats around you, you'll find Daniel 7 on page 697, Daniel, chapter 7. As we move into week two of our Advent sermon series entitled Christus Victor, which means Christ Victorious. Christ the Conqueror. Now, the reason Jesus came into the world that first Christmas 2,000 years ago was not so you could merely enjoy uh, warm, fuzzy, sentimental times with friends and family uh, or fun holiday movies and music and certainly not for you to indulge in Western American materialism. Instead, Christmas is ultimately about warfare It's about the overthrow and reversal of a satanic revolution of dark and ferocious powers that oppose God, that oppress the people of God, and and ultimately seek to be God. Uh, Throughout the scriptures, the forces of evil are described often in terms of deadly and cunning beasts, which is why Last week, I suggested that in addition to the Mary and Joseph and shepherds and, and smiling sheep and, and a cuddly baby, you also need to squeeze into your nativity sets a, a large, monstrous dragon bending down over that infant with jaws wide open. Just talking to somebody the other day, and they said, after your sermon last week, Demer, I'll never think of those nativity sets uh, the same way again. Uh, and, that, and that's good. You, you got the point if that's the case. During Christmas... We sing about peace on earth, and that's great. But, but that peace that is coming is coming through violent warfare between God and the beast. Now, last week we read Genesis chapter 3, and we met uh, a beast. We met the serpent. Uh, in reality, he's the devil, or Satan, who was once a good angel, but he was not content to serve and enjoy God. He wanted to be served. He wanted to be God. And so he revolted, and through his clever and murderous schemes, the world has been plunged into darkness and sin and death. And we also, last week, met Adam, the first man, who was created by God to image and enjoy God and have kingly dominion over the earth and over the beast of the field. But ironically, he ends up following the lead of a beast of the field, the serpent, and he joins the devil in the cosmic conspiracy against God. And in his rebellion, he plunges humanity into darkness and evil. Indeed, humanity becomes evil. And in the wake of that rebellion, God says that from that day forward, there would be two peoples, there would be two humanities, two groups, the children of the serpent who would follow in Adam's footsteps and the children of God who would love and trust God. And there would be perpetual conflict and struggle between these two groups while God promises victory through one special offspring who would be born to crush the serpent, if we're honest, it's sometimes hard to feel victorious. More often than not, throughout history, it seems like the offspring of the serpent is winning, that the rebels are on top and God's people are on the bottom. Injustice and evil hold sway in the world, corrupt rulers get away with horrible things, and... The norm for God's people through the centuries has been persecution and oppression and marginalization and opposition. Now, in some places, like America, Christians are are mocked and ridiculed and increasingly pushed to the margins of society. In other places, in many other places, prison and violent death is commonplace. In fact, uh, in the past 100 years, more Christian blood has been shed than in the past 1,900 years combined. God promises victory, but it seems like things aren't getting better for God's people, but worse. And and if we're honest, sometimes we feel like things are just spinning out of control in a dark world where the suffering and the opposition and the injustice and the evil seems to go on and on and on. Where we as Christians feel like exiles, we feel like strangers in a strange land. I mean, don't you feel like that? Don't, don't you increasingly feel less at home in a world that stands in opposition to almost everything that you believe in? It's exactly how you should feel. Uh, biblically speaking, if you're a Christian, you are in exile. Uh, we were made for paradise, <clears throat> for perfect fellowship with God and uh, in a perfect world uh, and a perfect kingdom. But Adam lost that long ago, and we are as far as ever from home. So how then does Christmas speak a word of hope to suffering exiles in a foreign land? Well, like Genesis 3, Daniel 7 is another scripture that gives us the hopeful picture of the cosmic warfare that is bound up in Christmas, uh, Dan chapter 7 is written in the genre of apocalyptic literature. I don't know if you know this, but this Bible is a very big book. But it also has uh, different genres of, of uh, writing in it. There's historical narrative. Uh, there's poetry. Uh, there, there's There's letters. Uh, but there's also this this very strange genre of apocalyptic writing. Um, it, it's uh, apocalyptic writing is very vivid. It's very dramatic. It's it's visual in nature, and it involves lots of symbols, uh, powerful symbols, uh, oftentimes fantastical, scary pictures that are that are meant to represent actual realities. And what surprises people often is that the main point of biblical apocalyptic writing, uh, whether that's Daniel seven or, or the, like the entire book of Revelation, that's apocalyptic literature, uh, the main point of apocalyptic writing is not to actually confuse people or cause them to be afraid. It's actually meant to provide a message of hope and encouragement for God's people. And Daniel's original audience really needed hope, really needed encouragement because for them, that, that Genesis 3.15 promise of a conflict between the offspring of the serpent and the children of God, that conflict reached a boiling point. In 605 B.C., the Babylonian Empire rose to global dominance and invaded the land of Judah. And God's people were taken and scattered abroad in an attempt to assimilate them to Babylonian culture and serve an evil empire. That was, Bab- that was always Babylon's strategy. Go in. Invade, take over, but then take some of those people and then just kind of scatter scatter them uh, abroad. And Daniel was one of those exiled captives, and so it was a time of of deep darkness and despair for God's people. All kinds of questions would have been going through their minds, like, "Where is God? Has He forgotten us? Will this Will this oppression end? Will Will we ever go home?" Or are we at the mercy of the uncontrollable forces of evil that seem to have their way? Well, the book of Daniel is written to answer that question for God's exiles then and now. The book of Daniel is for you, whom the Bible calls strangers and aliens and exiles in this dark and fallen world. Daniel 7, interestingly enough, is actually at the the center of the book of Daniel. And, and, and that's appropriate because the message of Daniel 7 really captures the point, the main point of the whole book. And in this chapter, we're, we're going to see a vision that on the one hand looks like something out of the most scary horror movie you have ever seen. But on the other hand, the darkness and the terrors of these night visions only serves to make the hope that God has for his exiled people shine all the more brightly and all the more glorious. Uh, So, if you've never read apocalyptic literature before, get your seatbelt on, buckle up, and if this is a different setting, I may say get your popcorn ready. It's going to be an interesting ride. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. This is Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 7, and we will read the whole chapter. Prophet Daniel writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and and in and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and uh, the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High." and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him." Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy and inspired word, and I pray that you will bless the preaching of it and the hearing of it and the meditation on it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, you got all that, right? There's going to be a quiz in just a few minutes. Um. If you were to, and by the way, if you're new to the Bible, you're thinking, is, is all the Bible like that? No. Like I said, there's different genres and different types of, of writing in, in the Bible, but a portion of it is, is, is like that, and you, and you have to deal with it. It's there. It's God's word. If you were to sum up the, um, the theme of the entire book of Daniel, it would be this. Despite appearances to the contrary, God is in control. Despite appearances to the contrary, God is in control. And, and, and again, as I alluded to earlier, what might surprise some folks is that apocalyptic writing, whether it's, it's Daniel 7 or, or the book of Revelation or some other parts of Scripture, while, while it can be confusing, and, and I'm right there with you on that, uh, apocalyptic writing is ultimately not meant to cause confusion, but actually it's meant to clarify. Uh, apocalyptic writing flows from a presupposition that under normal circumstances, we cannot fully see or understand reality. And texts like Daniel 7, should, should be seen as a corrective lens. Uh, the riveting, strange, gripping imagery is meant to get your attention and help you to see and interpret the world as it actually is. And the first thing that the text shows us is the horror of evil. The horror of evil. Look at verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, it's important to recognize that, that deep in the psyche of the people of the ancient Near East, the sea often was associated with evil, often associated with chaos, with dark spiritual forces that opposed the beneficial forces of creation. And interestingly enough, the Bible picks up on that imagery, and, and, so, and so it often uses the sea as a symbol, as a symbol for, uh, uh, of the wickedness and the rebellion of man in a world of turbulence and conflict and confusion. So, for example, Isaiah 17, 12 says, Ah, the roar of many peoples, like the roaring of the seas, the raging of the nations, like the raging of mighty water. Or, Isaiah 57, says, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Elsewhere, Isaiah describes a twisting serpent in the sea, a beast called Leviathan. Uh, Leviathan is a symbol of satanic evil. And as we step into this night vision with Daniel, what we witness are not just waves that are crashing against the shore... Instead, these waters are being stirred up by the four winds. The, the turbulent, chaotic waters are moving in all directions. Uh, Tremper Longman writes that, for the original reader, this description of the sea evokes horror and an anticipation of evil. The scene is set. It already evokes horror, but the story is just beginning. And so, what happens next is not surprising at all. Verse 3 and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, these beasts are, are representative uh, of four world empires, four kings or kingdoms. Sometimes king and kingdoms are used interchangeably. Um, and it's important to realize, and we don't have time to go there today, but it's important to realize that Daniel 7 corresponds to Daniel 2, Daniel chapter 2, where you read about King Nebuchadnezzar, the other Babylon, Babylonian king before Belshazzar, Belshazzar's dad, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of an awesome, brilliant, gigantic, metallic statue made from four metals, which pointed to four kingdoms. And that awesome, glorious colossus that that Nebuchadnezzar saw is a fitting image representing that which man strives to be, which Adam strove to be in the garden, striving for a greatness and a glory apart from God. But when Adam reaches for greatness apart from God, attempting to be God, he does not become greater than he is. Instead, he becomes corrupt and perverted. He becomes less than he is. Because the farther we fall from God and his glory, the less human we become. And the more we're like raging, twisted, brute beasts, slavishly following our sinful impulses and appetites. And so what's interesting then is is that while Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 saw the kingdoms of man as a beautiful, glittering, glorious statue, Daniel sees the kingdoms of man unmasked and, and exposed for what they really are, raging, ravenous, horrifying beasts, even their even their appearance suggests a rebellion against the natural created order, a chaotic disorderliness. Because while in Genesis one you've got animals that are created after their own kinds, in Daniel seven you've got creatures that actually make no sense physiologically. They're like mutants, and they represent sinful nations, sinful governments, led by sinful men who, like Adam, seek to throw off God's restraint. And grasp for godlike greatness. And from one angle, the kingdoms of man are, are glittering and awesome and brilliant and glorious, but when seen for what they truly are, they are twisted and ferocious beasts. They emerge from the sea, Satan's domain, because they're energized by him and are like him. Now, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in general agreement with the majority consensus from scholars on the identity of these four kingdoms, but if you've got a different view, they're, they're, that's fine. There are different views in regards to the particulars of, of what some of the symbolism is in Daniel 7, and that's okay because the point of apocalyptic writing is not to obsess over the details and emphasize the, the individual trees over the forest, you need to get the forest. Ultimately, Daniel is taking us to one big, major, clear, easy-to-understand point. And so that's where I aim to take us as well, regardless of any different views on some of the, the little details and particulars here and there. So, so if you want to know what each of the 10 horns on the four beasts represent, or on the fourth beast represent, you're out of luck. Uh, if you want to know what the, what the you know the toes or the toenails or the goop between the toes represent. I'm not going to get into all those details. We're, we're, we're going to get the, the big picture here. God willing, you're going to leave here this morning holding on to something even more important than those things. So, with that said, verse 4, the, the, first, the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. This beast represents Babylon which would be the kingdom presently in charge when Daniel had this vision. In fact, the lion was Babylon's national symbol. Uh, Look at the middle of verse four. It says, then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. That probably speaks uh, to the humiliation and restoration of King Nebuchadnezzar that is detailed in Daniel chapter four. You can read about that on your own. But what's interesting is that as quickly as this beast comes on the scene, all of a sudden it's gone and a new beast arrives. Verse 5, behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, and it was raised up on one side. Now, there's significant agreement among scholars that this points to the next great world empire to come on the scene that displaced Babylon. That would be the Medo-Persian empire. And we know that the Persian side was dominant over media, and and perhaps that's why the bear is raised up on one side. Don't know for sure, but that is uh, one of the guesses out there. But the most striking thing about the bear is its ravaging power. Verse 5 says it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Now, so so the beast here is enjoying a fresh kill. The three ribs might represent the three great conquests of the Medo-Persian Empire. That would be Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. Hard to know that for sure. Again, we're not going to obsess over the details. Uh, The point is this kingdom will be engaged in devouring conquest with an insatiable appetite for more. Verse 5, it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Which would make me nervous if I'm Daniel standing there on the beach looking at this beast. But suddenly, our attention is diverted again as still another beast takes center stage. It's interesting how these beasts are coming and going rather quickly. Verse 6. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. It's, it's another mutant animal, like a leopard. A leopard is a, is a beast known especially for being what? It's fast. Fast and agile, but, but it's, it's got to be even faster now because it has wings, four wings. It's moving at lightning speed, and And most scholars concur this beast corresponds to the Greek empire. Uh, Alexander the Great moved swiftly against the Medo-Persians and within a decade controlled everything from the Indus River to the Nile. Moved very, very swiftly. When he died in 323 BC, that empire was divided among four of his generals. That might be why the leopard has four heads. But we don't have long to contemplate this before yet another beast fills our vision and things go from bad to worse. Verse seven, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, had great iron teeth, devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. So the fourth and greatest beast does not really look like anything in creation. And who is this? Well, we know that the, great next, the, the next great empire after the Greeks was who? It's Rome, it's Rome. Uh, the roman empire subdued greece and the known world and the brutality and destructive power of this beast is unparalleled it breaks things and smashes what is left and, and indeed there was a saying that the romans came and make a the, the romans come and make a desert and call it peace uh, they leave nothing left uh, verse 7 says it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns now That could be 10 separate kings or 10 provinces or or, it just could be something symbolic of, of great power. There's different ideas that are thrown out there. But you have all of these kind of theories about the horns and you can miss the main point. We're not supposed to focus on all the horns but on one in particular. And this is verse seven now. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So, the symbolism here of of the little horn seems to point not simply to a governmental power, but an individual. He's got human eyes, which indicate intelligence, and a speaking mouth that is boasting and bragging about himself, exalting himself, lifting himself up. And this, this this figure is the embodiment and the climactic culmination of all the raging and turbulent waters of rebellion that have been seen in kingdom after kingdom from age to age. He is anti-God. Many believe he is antichrist, the final antichrist as this little horn seems to point to something that reaches far beyond the time of the ancient Roman empire. But again, let's keep our eye on the big picture. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. The issue for Daniel's original audience is not figuring out what all of these horns are. The issue is that from the time of Daniel until the very end of history, there will be an evil and a raging against God and against God's people that will culminate in a final climactic outburst of evil and wickedness. And that's a sobering message for Daniel's original audience. You you put yourself in their shoes. They're longing for freedom. They're longing for a return from exile. In fact, those exiles who would have been familiar with the book of Jeremiah and, and Jeremiah's prophecy, they would know that the return home would actually come soon for them. But the striking revelation that Daniel receives is that what lies next for the people of God is not peace. Uh, it's gonna get worse before it gets better. A horrific evil like savage beasts will continue to be loose in the world, raging against God, raging against the people of God, and it's gonna go on throughout history. And so, let's go back now to the stormy nighttime beach scene with Daniel. In this vision, he's confronted by all of these, these, these beasts, and, and, and then the worst of all the beasts. And, and there's this little horn that is boasting and bragging and blaspheming God. I can imagine Daniel, holy man that he is, covering his ears so that he will not hear such foul blasphemies. All Daniel can do is watch in horror and wonder, when, when's this going to end? Well, will anyone be able to, to stop the advance of this evil darkness in the world? Which brings us to my next point, which is the hero of the story. The hero of the story. So first we see the horror of evil in verses 1 through 8. Verses 9 through 14, we meet the hero of the story. Suddenly the scene dramatically changes as the camera pans away from the terror of the sea, away from the raging monster, away from the noise of the wind, away from the endless verbal tirade of that little horn. And there's a shift in the scene now from chaos to control, from raging to peace. Look at verse 9. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. In contrast to the storm-tossed sea, we are now transported to a throne room. All thoughts of, of other kings and other kingdoms are pushed aside and forgotten as our attention is riveted to this being called the Ancient of Days. He takes his seat. Now, the Ancient of Days is a name for God that communicates eternality. In other words, God has always been and he always will be. He's been on his throne before all of these raging beasts and he will be there long after they are long gone. And most relevant to the Jewish exiles who are Daniel's original audience, he's on the throne right now. He's on the throne right now. No no matter how bad things seem, despite appearances to the contrary, God's in control. The exiles are in Babylon not because uh, evil got the upper hand against God. Instead, the exiles are there because God controls that winged lion and used it as a lackey to carry the Jews into captivity. In fact, at the very beginning of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, the book begins by reminding us that, yes, Babylon defeated Judah, but it was God who gave Judah into Babylon's hands. And even here in Daniel's vision, uh, there's already been hints that there is a power superior to the beast. That's at work behind the scenes. In verse 4, we read that someone has plucked off the lion's wings, making it stand like a man, giving it a man's mind. In verse 5, we saw that someone is giving orders to that bear to devour much flesh. In verse 6, someone is giving dominion to the leopard. There's a power above these powers, And in verse 9, we learn that it's the Ancient of Days. His throne is above their thrones. Verse 9 says, his clothing was white as snow. That, That speaks of purity. And then it says, his hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool. That speaks of wisdom. And then it says, his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. That speaks of judgment. So the Ancient of Days has got the wisdom to discern right from wrong. He's got the purity to make righteous judgments, and and he's got the power to carry out that judgment. Notice that this throne has wheels. It's not not, uh, immovable. It's not stuck in one place. It's mobile. God's throne, God's presence isn't just in Israel. It isn't just in Judah. God is enthroned as king even in Babylon, and in the throne room of God, there is no chaos. There is no anxiety. In fact, the book of Revelation chapter four tells us that extending from God's throne is a sea. Huh, That's interesting, a sea. But it's not raging. It's not churning. It's not chaotic and out of control. It's the exact opposite. Revelation four says it's a sea of glass. It's calm. It's still, it's in control. There's absolute peace. God's not wringing his hands. He's, he's seated on the throne in total control. But, when, when, but on the other hand, when all we think about is the sea and the turbulent chaotic waters... We think about the raging evil beast of this world. If that's all we're gazing on, if we're looking at Fox News and CNN and news talk radio and and the anxiety and anger and fear on social media, it's easy for us to panic and freak out and think that God has abandoned us or that he doesn't see our situation or that he's lost control. But when, like Daniel, our eyes are turned to focus on the reality that God is seated on his throne and that he is sovereignly working all things together for his good purposes, that does not deny reality, it clarifies reality. Verse 10 says, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So that means that there is a day of reckoning that is coming. Accounts will be settled and the world will be called to account. Evil will be judged. Now, Daniel is transfixed by this heavenly vision, but like an uninvited guest, the sound of that stupid, arrogant little horn has come back into his ears, snapping his attention back to the beast. All of this time, the horn has not shut up. It just keeps talking and talking and talking and talking with boastful words of self-exaltation and harsh attacks against God. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. What? What? That's it? It's done? You're expecting this huge battle, right? This big showdown. I mean, things have been building up throughout the whole chapter. Uh, We're made to be fearful of these beasts and this horn which is so proud and so arrogant and so terrifying and earth shattering and he's talking himself up and he's threatening everybody and everyone and in a millisecond it's all over round one knockout. It's anticlimactic. It's supposed to be. Daniel 7 is meant to teach us about the horrific reality of evil and its might, but it is also meant to teach us that the power of God dwarfs the power of evil. But it gets better. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now that's interesting. Unlike the beasts, this is a human figure. He's like a son of man and he's not coming up out of the sea. He's coming down with the clouds of heaven. His appearance is like a man but he's more than a man because he's riding on the clouds. Who is he? Psalm 104.3 says, He makes the clouds His chariots and rides on the wings of the wind. Who makes the cloud His chariot? God does. The cloud rider is none other than God Himself. Now that's interesting because we see the Ancient of Days on the throne over there and we see the approach of the cloud rider over there. And it's natural to ask, okay, is that God or is that God? And the answer is yes. And here we touch on the outskirts of the glorious doctrine of the Trinity, which teaches that there is one God. But this God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. John chapter 1, verse 1, which Jared read earlier says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god. And it goes on to say that that word became flesh. That word became a man and he dwelt among us. Matthew writing about that first christmas says in Matthew chapter 1, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And that name Emmanuel means God with us. The son, this offspring of the woman, was Jesus, the God-man. You know, it's not incidental that Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. Jesus has a lot of names. He's called a lot of things. But but he latched onto that title and called himself that more than anything else. Jesus is a Son of Man, a human being. In fact, he is all that humans were meant to be but failed to be. That's why he's called elsewhere the second Adam. The, The first Adam was the first man, And he was privileged to rule over a God-given kingdom. In fact, King David, marveling over God's special attention to man and the special privileges God gave man, says in amazement in Psalm chapter 8, What is man? That you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, that's angels, and crown him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field. But Adam, the first Adam, as we read last week in Genesis 3, falls short of, of, of really uh, uh, exemplifying Psalm 8. He falls, and humanity falls with him and every sinner replays Adam's rebellion. Though we are to have dominion over the beast, we end up raging against God like a beast, whether you are a world dictator or whether you are a fifth grader. Your desire, apart from Christ, is to establish your own little beastly kingdom and bring your own little world under your control. Revolving around your selfish desires, where you 're all apart from christ, little beasts, little little dictators, raging against God, Sin- sinful man in his churning and raging like the chaotic sea, will never be able to bring order and peace and stability to a sinful and corrupt world. And so we are lost unless another man comes into the world to succeed where Adam failed. And that's what the son of man does. Jesus is not just a son of man, he's the son of man. He inevitably succeeds because we learn from Daniel 7 that the son of man is not just a man, but the one who rides the clouds. Jesus reflects the glory of God perfectly and obeys the Father without fail and for that reason he gains what Adam lost. Daniel 7:14 says, "To him to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away." and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In fact, is that not what Gabriel affirmed to Mary when he appeared to her and said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Unlike the dominion of the four beasts, the dominion of the Son of Man is global and universal and will never be destroyed. That's good news. But Yeah, thank you for that. But there's more. The hope of the righteous is the final thing I want us to think about. So, we have the horror of evil, the hero of the story, and the hope of the righteous. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Now, why would he be so distraught? he's just had a vision of the triumph of God. That's great. God wins. But what about God's people? Yes, Babylon will fall, and the exiles will go home. But Daniel is discovering that it won't be immediately happy, happily ever after. His vision clearly says that after Babylon... Comes another evil kingdom, and after that comes another and another and another, and the intensity of wickedness will only get worse. Yes, God triumphs, but what's going to happen to His people? What's the end of the story for the people of God? Verse 16 I approached one of those who stood there and asked Him the truth concerning all this, so He told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So if you mark up your Bible, highlight, underline, circle, verses 17 and 18, that's the main point of this vision. If you can't figure out anything else about this vision and you're lost in all the symbols and I don't know what that horn means and what that monster means or whatever, verses 17 through 18, that's it. That's the takeaway. And on the other side of suffering is glory. That's a constant theme in the Bible. Triumph through suffering. It's the main point of the whole vision. And, it's, and notice, it's not just that the Son of Man will possess the kingdom, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom with Him. We will triumph with Him. And that's important to know because the victory is not immediately obvious. Daniel wonders again about that fourth beast and and about that little horn and he's given more details in verse 21. He says, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints, that's believers, with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So, Despite the glorious vision of the throne of God that we saw earlier, despite the declaration that the saints will be victorious with God, here we see that the ones who have supposedly received the kingdom are the ones being trampled down. And so from all appearances, they look like losers. And folks, that is the normal experience for the people of God. Because we live in between what theologians call the already and the not yet. You ever heard of that? The already and the not yet. What does that mean? The kingdom has already come in Christ. And there there are certain realities that that we see in in the ramifications of Christ's first advent, of his first coming. And yet, we look around and we still see the kingdoms of this world and all of their raging turbulence. We see the the evil run amok, and injustice, and suffering, and all those things. The kingdom has come, but it hasn't come in its fullness. We still wait for that. Hebrews chapter 2 confirms that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. Jesus was made a little lower than the heavenly beings. In other words, though he was God... He became man, and God has put everything in subjection to him under his feet. That's total control and total victory. But right after that, the author of Hebrews says, but at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It's the already and the not yet. That's what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus declares the victory, but also he forecasts ongoing strife. It's the already and the not yet, living in between that tension. And so, in the meantime, as we wait for the not yet to come, in the meantime, as Don Carson says, the gospel is boldly advancing under the contested reign and inevitable victory of King Jesus. So the reign is still contested. It's still being challenged by little horns, (laughs) Uh, would-be usurpers. And and the evil little horn of Daniel 7 is the climax of the persecution of God's people, the climax of the raging against God. Uh, The scriptures have not promised believers their best life now. Instead, it promises that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. I feel like I've been quoting that verse a lot in my sermons this year, but it just kind of keeps coming back. I I think it's so important. I think we need to remember that and and recognize that. And so in light of that, then, how will the people of God find relief? how How will the people of God fully and finally experience victory? Through the January runoff election here in Georgia? When when you get the guy in the White House that you want who's gonna save America, brothers and sisters, never forget you're in exile. The kingdom of America is not the kingdom of God, and this is not your true home. And so, ultimate relief and rest for the people of God will not come until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days comes and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. We're waiting for that, we're waiting for relief. We're waiting for vindication. That text says God will render his verdict in favor of his people. That's what it means that judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. It's only going to be then when we enter into the fullness of our inheritance. We have it now already, but not yet. And so until then, it will get worse before it gets better. That's pretty much the angel's answer in verse 25. He says that this little horn shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. That's an expression of self-exaltation and self-deification, but then, the, then, the, then this person tells Daniel, and this last part's important, he says, And they, the saints, shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. In other words, the apparent dominance of the forces of evil is limited. It won't last forever. It'll be suddenly cut short. Why? Because the little horn, in all of its boastfulness and bravado, isn't really in charge. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, folks, that is the third time The text has mentioned that things are gonna get really bad, but the saints shall nevertheless possess the kingdom. Hermeneutical principle. If something is repeated in the Bible, pay attention. Repetition is important. This is is over and over again, this is being said in Daniel seven. The point, God wins, the son of man triumphs, and the people of God triumph with him. On the other side of this suffering is glory. But that begs the question, how? It makes sense that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, would inherit the kingdoms and reign over the world because he deserves that. But how in the world do we get to inherit that? Us who have been rebels ourselves. (laughs) Little, little horns, ourselves. Well, if you're a Christian, you know the answer. Triumph comes through suffering, but not through our own suffering, but the suffering of another. Christmas is about the Son of Man. It's about the, that great cloud rider in Daniel chapter 7, uh, the one who is destined to inherit the kingdoms of the world, but before his exaltation comes humiliation. Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. For who? For rebellious subjects, paying the death penalty that we deserve. On the cross, it seems like the enemies of God are winning. But despite appearances to the contrary, God is in control. And on the other side of his suffering is glory. He triumphs over sin and he crushes death when he rises from the grave. And so, whoever is united to Jesus by faith receives what Jesus receives. We triumph over sin. We receive God's forgiveness for our sin of Adam-like rebellion against this kingdom. And we become less beastly as he renews our natures and makes us more and more like Christ. And we triumph over the grave with him. He, as he emerges from the grave, Jesus is seen as the firstborn of a new humanity. Uh, no longer subject to death, and so we too will conquer the grave. What's more, he's God's son, and so when we're united to Jesus by faith, we become adopted children of God, and as the son receives an inheritance of the kingdoms, so so as children, we receive that inheritance also, not because of our merit, not because of our good work, our deservedness, but because of Christ's. And so the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so the message of Daniel 7, and I'm bringing this for a landing now, don't worry if you're looking at your watch. The message of Daniel 7 for you, believer, is that yes, the world is dark, and the world is evil, and it is hard, and there is suffering, and life for the Christian is not a pie-in-the-sky, happy-clappy, reality-denying existence. In fact, if you go down to verse 28, Daniel says, here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. His color changed. He was, he was, he was rocked, rocked by what he just saw. Daniel has a sobering sober understanding of the seriousness of all of this. The path for God's people into the future is tougher than he thought it would be. But we see that at the end of it all, God is in control. God is with his people. God will cause his people to triumph, and the forces of evil don't have the final word. Suffering doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. The beasts are subdued. Jesus wins. Jesus reigns. So fear not, little flock, Jesus says to you in Luke twelve thirty-two, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever in rebellion against God, and you think that you are just fine in that rebellion, and there's no accountability, and everybody's free to do what everyone wants, and it's going to be that way forever, the message of Daniel 7 for you is that despite present appearances, God is in control. God is on His throne, and God will render judgment, and one day He will return to earth, and you will face Him. Laugh now if you will, but it's coming. The one who in his first advent came as a little baby in a manger to save sinners will return in his second advent to judge them. In fact, Jesus says as much. Jesus, facing his persecutors, who would just in a few hours cheer as he's being nailed to a cross, Jesus looks his enemies in the eye And he says, there will come a day when you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The cloud rider will return. And if you are still raging against him like a beast, you will be destroyed. But if you cast all of your hope on him and him alone, trusting in his grace and his mercy, you will find yourself among the saints of the Most High And you shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom with him as he reigns forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word of Daniel 7, which really tells us ultimately what Christmas is all about. Who thinks of Daniel 7 and Christmas? Well, you have caused us to think about it today. And we thank you that though we have all been rebels and insurrectionists, against you and committed the worst of treason against you. And so we deserve the penalty of death and eternal judgment and wrath. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you so loved sinners that you sent Jesus Christ into the world to be born as a baby, not to remain as a cute, cuddly baby, but to grow up and be nailed to a slab of wood like a piece of meat. To suffer and die and receive the fullness of the wrath of God as our substitute, paying the price for sins so that all who trust in you will find that their sins now have been paid for by you. Father, I pray for those, the many in this room who would be counted among the saints of the Most High, who would be believers who are going through great difficulty and great turmoil and great suffering. Father, I pray that you would encourage them through the Daniel 7 vision and that they know that that they might know that what they're going through now is not the end of the story, that this is all moving in a direction that is leading to glory. And leading to something so wonderful, not just for your glory, but for the good of all of your people. Help us to have hope in those promises and let those promises fuel our obedience to You and our love for You and our love for others. And Father, if there's anyone in this room who has not bent the knee to the cloud rider, King Jesus, I pray that they would acknowledge Your Son as King now, willingly and gladly receiving You by faith and receiving Your forgiveness, than having to do it later on as a conquered enemy. Let this be the day of of salvation for anyone in this room who needs it. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.